It's Monday night, and that means a brand new episode of Graphic Policy Radio, the show that dares to mix comics and politics. This is the show for folks who wonder when the Republican presidential candidates decide to just give up and form their own Legion of Doom. There's more than enough of them. Uh, tonight, I'm flying solo, but have a special first-time guest of the show joining me. Brian Edward Hill uh, is going to uh, keep me entertained. I mean, have a great conversation. Uh, so Brian is a writer for both comics and films. Uh, he currently writes Postal for Image Comics, uh, Top Cow Productions, and as well as the upcoming Romulus that's also going to be coming out from Top Cow. Um, he also was recently brought on board as a story editor for uh, Top Cow, so we're going to talk to him about his career, uh, those series, and, you know, we're going to see where we go from there. Uh, Brian, thanks for, for joining me, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Brett. This is great to be on here. I'm a big fan of this website. You know, it's uh, I, I talk to a lot of people about how there's room to elevate the discussion around comics and culture, and uh, the sites that cover comics can be more than simply saying what's coming out this week, you know, and, and uh, what movie's getting made and who's getting cast and what and all this. You know, I think it's great that you're out there tying comics into other issues because art affects everything. So anything that I can do to uh, be part of the graphic policy thing, I'm certainly always uh, ready and available to do it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, I mean, the the site really started. I mean, the the short version is I wanted to blog and write. I was working in politics, writing emails and other copy and all that's really dry and boring, and I was like, I want to blog, and I couldn't oh, well, blog. So were you doing, like, uh, like solicitations like that? Like, you know, get out the vote stuff or, like, writing emails for politics? Tell me a little bit about that. Like, what, what was that all about? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so when the when the show launched, I was working for the Dodd presidential campaign. Um, oh, Chris Dodd. And I was part of the, the, email, uh, the Internet team, so there was, like, five of us. And um, wow. so we, we all had to do a lot of different roles. So part of it was rolling, writing blog posts and writing emails, um, you know, social network stuff. Um, I mean, and but all of it can get really, really dry. Back then it, was, it wasn't quite as fun and entertaining as it is now, uh, but it was sure. the beginning of that, which, which was kind of fun. Um, well, that's because or, back then they had actual politicians running for office <laughs> and not who runs now. <laughs> so, yeah. Was, it was a bit more policy driven and not lunatics. We're more we're lunatics now. That's that's the strategy. Yeah, well, back then too, like the I, people seem to forget it was. Um, I mean, not to completely go off the rails in the conversation, but uh, back then was the fight over um, FISA and wiretapping. And, that's right. That's right. And then it was uh, Obama, Edwards. I think was still in the Senate at that point. Uh, Clinton, mm-hmm. Dodd, um, Biden, and they were, you know, all senators. And you know, this huge legislation was coming up, and uh, the the internet director came in, and uh, a guy named Tim Tegaris, really, really smart. Um, and we were talking. He's like, you know, this is a huge issue, and it was something we all believed in on the internet team. We we're like, you know, sure. this is huge. Like, this is our area. Dodd. I mean, like. His, his father worked on the Nuremberg trials. He believes in, um, you know, he, totally against FISA and everything it stands for. Um, mm-hmm. Totally believes the Constitution, right of law, all that stuff. Um, we're like, we got to convince him to, to get in on this. And eventually he, he comes around and agrees with us. And we wound up uh, basically working with uh, God knows how many organizations to, to bring down the FISA vote. And what folks don't remember, and this is one of the earliest 
examples of actual, uh, I won't call it lobbying, but uh, you know, outside organizations attempting to, to influence legislation was um, sure. was down for debate. And um, we, our team, like the five of us, were actually whipping votes. Um, we were getting all like, oh, the supporters wow. to go and and call their senators, and then call into us with with uh, updates as to who was voting for what. And wow. um, we were the the crazier was we decided to lock ourselves in a room and and video stream it, and we weren't going to leave no. the room. Yeah, really? yeah, we were, yeah yeah we were huge on video, live video. So we were streaming the room with us as we were kind of working in this war room. And we were not going to leave the room until uh, we either won or we lost. So if that vote went so on, you, for so like, you were like producing your own Aaron Sorkin reality series, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's even a right. crazier story on that. Uh, but we wound up whipping votes, and then I remember uh, Harry Reid coming in. Uh, he was making a speech. Uh, Ted Kennedy came in, like basically tapped him on the shoulder pulled him out into the cloakroom, and I just turned to everyone. I was like, this is the point when Kennedy is just reading, uh, read the riot act. And they came out, and they're like, we're pulling the legislation. We all kind of like paused, and we looked at each other. We we're like, wait, what? Um, wow. And, of course, we immediately start calling. We're like, wait, they're actually pulling the legislation. So we won, and, I mean, it was a, it was a huge moment. It was actually one of the, the most fun and cool things I think I've ever done in, in politics. One of the more meaningful That's things. Right. That's a great story, man. And I mean, that, that, you know, you got Reed in there and the line of the Senate comes out. Like, that's awesome. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, that's really cool. Like, I, uh, so the, I, I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, and I was a scholarship kid to, uh, uh, like, a college prep high school there. And kind of small classes and all that. And one of my good friends in high school was Bo Willimon, uh, House of Cards guy, playwright, okay. uh, House of Cards showrunner. And so, you know, Bo, he worked on uh, the Howard Dean campaign. Um, that that year that, that Dean had that, I guess it was an implosion. You know, he made that crazy raw sound on stage and then his poll number started to drop. I felt like they were making a little bit too much hay out of all that, but it just kind of derailed the Dean campaign, I guess. I don't really know the ins and outs of it. But, uh, but yeah, you know, um, I've always been interested in politics. And I talk to Bo about it sometimes still. Um, I never really have found my way in. I was approached um, recently, I don't know, within the past like six years or so, by the right-wing elements uh, of Missouri, even though I'm like a rapacious liberal, um, about doing some kind of bridge building between Republicans and people of color. And I, um, you know, I, I'm all for more people getting involved in the process. So like the sort of the bigger tent discussion of it all I was interested in, but I just could never really find my rhythm, you know, in that world. So instead, I just tell overly political, you know, genre stories. <laughs> that's, that's what I that's, that's what I turned into. I, I decided I'd be Gore Vidal instead, right? So. Yeah. Uh, the true story. The reason I got in was it was something I always wanted to do. It was either uh, politics. Uh, something with biology or lawyer, mm. and I kind of narrowed it down to politics. So I decided to do an internship, I think my junior year of high school with the county ledge. And wow. no joke, it was, uh, it might have been like the last week or last couple of weeks. And they, they bring me in, uh, the, the legislator I was actually interning with brought me in for, you know, the the handshake and the photo in front of the, the press to make her look good. And uh, um, walking down the hallway and all I hear is, you motherfucker. And the two elected officials are going at it, like fist fight in the hallway. 
before really? the session. Yeah, and uh, I ran, and then uh, two other guys who uh, ironically I wound up working with uh, probably six years later and became really good friends with, uh, ran down and pulled the two guys apart. Uh, and the, the story is that one purposely had a committee meeting when he knew the other guy couldn't be there and did it to purposely make him look bad uh, and screw him over, which is very typical and uh, common. Sure. But uh, it was uh, it was entertaining. It, and then I, I actually still have the journal somewhere, and I, I know I wrote in there that this is the most asinine thing ever. It is wrestling for grown-ups. I have to do this for a living. <laughs> well, you know, you are perfectly positioned to be a uh, part of the comics industry after having experiences like that. <laughs> I, I haven't witnessed fist fights yet. I haven't seen a fist fight yet, but there is a lot of, you know, that sort of stuff that kind of goes in entertainment in general. You know, I mean, I, uh, I, I was, I was doing a, a screenplay a rewrite for a, a producer I won't name. And I've seen, you know, uh, meetings where I'm talking to someone about rewriting a screenplay, an assistant comes in, pokes their head in and says something the producer doesn't like. Producer proceeds to throw something at the assistant in a state that, that looks like absolute rage. And assistant runs away, producer turns to me and then changes on a dime back into the pleasant person I was talking to 15 seconds prior. Um, and you just have to develop a strong cognitive dissonance a lot of times. You know, you I, just have I, to say, you know what? That's all right. That's insane, but that's cool. I can totally make this work. I'm trying to think of who the elected official was, but there were, I don't think she's elected anymore, uh, but she actually had a, a line of demarcation in her office where the staff, when they knew that they had to go in and it was going to be something that would piss her off, would stand behind uh -huh. because they knew her aim dropped like like amazing, just a huge drop in her aim and accuracy of throwing shit at them. So, they had to calculate bullet drop when they had to get the yeah. person news. Yeah, and I've tried, I I really wish I remember who it was. It, it was like one of those people who's notorious of just being horrible to work with. Uh, and there was a long list of them. But yeah, I mean, the, the stories I've got go on for forever as far as politics and just the weird, crazy stuff I've seen. Um, wow, it, it's that, even got to the point. Crazy. Yeah, I, I tell people in, uh, stories and, and they just look at me and they're like, there is no way that's true. And I'm, at, at this point, it's just all, yeah, it's normal. So the weird stuff doesn't even phase me anymore. It has to get really weird and crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, you do, you do kind of just, uh, you build a greater tolerance for human behavior. And I think that that becomes a self-justifying thing too, right? Because as behavior becomes more permissive, then people continue to push the envelope of what is acceptable behavior. And sometimes we wind up creating this uh, kind of this cyclone of rudeness you know, when it comes to conduct and how we discuss things with people, and especially in the, the artistic professions, right? Because there's a lot of the end justifies the means, you know, in the, in the culture of professional art. And I, sometimes I do think that people um, are a little less uh, cognizant of the emotional fallout of how they treat other people because they're so concerned about the result of the project, of the art itself. And I try to, as much as I can, never fall into the trap of being a, a fully grown adolescent, um, <laughs> even if I'm allowed to be, right? Like, sometimes you have to not do what you're permitted to do uh, because it's just, you know, there's a better way to be. 
Um, and so that's, that's sort of something I've tried to adopt. But, yeah, there are some pretty cantankerous folks out there. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it's. I think politics has uh, desensitized me for what I've experienced in comics so far, for good and bad. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so- Let's discuss comics. Uh, so, you know, you're currently writing Postal. You've got Romulus coming out. You've got this new job with Top Cow. You know, how did your career actually begin in the comic industry? Oh, well, okay. So so for anyone who's listening to this that wants to know how to become a comic book professional, there really is no set path to do it. I mean, everyone's going to tell crazy stories, and so this is my crazy story. So I went to NYU film school. Um, I uh, uh, I was writing when I was there, but I was in the directing program, undergrad. So I come out in 1999, and I'm betraying my age now, but I don't care. So I graduated in 1999, and I didn't want to go to L.A. I, I, you know, I just felt like moving to L.A. wouldn't really you know, make me a professional in that way. New York was just such an enriching experience. And one of my best friends um, that I met while I was at NYU was a guy named Nelson Blake. Um, who's a comic book artist. I'm working with him on the list, but this is way back, way back then. And so, uh, you know, Nelson and I were just kind of hanging out, and he met a guy named Walter McDaniel. And Walter was part of the image generation of the 90s. Um, Mark Silvestri knows him well. Um, Matt Hawkins, you know, knows him well. And so Walter had a little studio of artists, and he was looking for a writer that would work with some of the uh, intellectual properties he was developing and turn them into stories. You know, what you'll find is a lot of artists have a lot of story in their head. They have a thing that they want to do, but they don't have the organization, the structure, you know, the act breaks, the way to just kind of lay it all out as a narrative. But they'll have, like, reams of sketches and images and these great, like, visceral moments. And so uh, I started working with them, really just building the IPs, in a broad storytelling way, not really thinking about writing comics, even though I loved comics, but I never really thought about uh, And I just knew those guys for a long time and stayed in New York, New York for a very long time. Um, then I ended up selling a few screenplays. And uh, I met Rob Levin, who was an editor at Top Cow at the time. Uh, Rob and I got along really well, so Rob asked me, hey, you know, have you ever thought about writing comics? And I was like, yeah, you know, I have, but I just don't know how one does that. You know, like there's no program you go into and then you graduate and you intern here. It doesn't seem to work that way. Um, so Rob was like, well, we have this thing called Broken Trinity. It's the spinoff of the Witchblade universe. It's got these two characters. One is a woman that turns into a dragon and a man that turns into an ice giant. Uh, Ron Mars is architecting all of this, but, you know, would you like to do a short story? So I said, well, yeah, because Ron's doing it. And uh, Ron, when I had met him socially before then, he'd been incredibly kind and generous to me. So uh, I asked Ron, you know, how does one write a comic book? And so Ron sent me uh, a comic book script of his. And then I read and studied it. And Ron has, I think, hands down the most beautiful and clean format of every comic book script I've read. You know, I use <laughs> the Mars format is what I call it. I suggest that other people use it. It's just so clear. And, and, and so sort of classical in its form. Uh, and I'm a Taurus, so I, I, I do gravitate towards classical forms, right? Um, so I used this format and wrote the short story and uh, met, you know, Matt through that process. And then I kind of went away and came back and went away and came back. So I did a uh, six-issue miniseries 
that I co-wrote with Rob Levin uh, called Broken Trinity, Pandora's Box. Uh, Alessandro Zidi was the artist for most of the series. I think he switched artists like somewhere along the line, but Alessandro did most of the artwork. And so I did that, and then I went away into screenwriting for a bit, and then uh, Top Cow used to do these things called pilot season. I don't know if you remember that, if you're aware of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was kind of a cool idea, right? It was you would submit these ideas, and they would pick these ideas uh, to do single issue, like one shot things with, and do about five of them, six of them, you know, every year, and part part of like a whole event. And so I had this idea called Seven Days from Hell uh, that was like a James Bond meets Rod Serling sort of thing. It was kind of like a Twilight Zone take on, you know, like the super spy genre uh, about an assassin who um, was on a job to kill a guy. Uh, the guy was traveling with his kid, the mark was. He doesn't kill the kid, but the kid uh, picks up a gun and shoots him. And he's going to go to hell because he's not a great guy. But on his way to hell, he's uh, rescued by a demon um, who's like a, you know, kind of like a Kate Moss, Natalie Port version of a demon. And says, listen, I don't want to be a demon anymore. I want to get back into heaven. Um, I have to show, you know, God that I can be redeemed. And you definitely need to show God that you can be redeemed. So here's the deal. I'm going to give you a target, a person that deserves to go to hell in your place, and you're going to get seven days to catch up to that target and kill that target. If you succeed, you get a new target and a new seven days. If you fail, then you just go straight to hell. And so that was the concept of the book. And so I, uh, you know, I, I pitched that over there. Matt liked it. Um, Rob and I worked on it. I got Phil Noto to do the art, right, which is, which is insane because I was a huge Phil Noto fan. And he had just done a couple of things. He had done, uh, like, you know, and he had done a lot of stuff, but it, he wasn't like the Black Widow Phil Noto that we have today. He was like, you know, he did some stuff like the New West and some other pieces. Um, he wasn't the household name he is now. And I remember chasing him on the floor of Comic-Con, Brett. Uh, I got a vocal commitment from Matt that Phil Noto was going to be okay. I went to Phil Noto's table. I think I took him by the hand, and I'm like, you have to come over to Top Cow so we can make this work, because having Phil Noto do a book was like a dream of mine. Um, and, yeah, I did that, and people received that fairly well, and that kind of cemented me in, you know, the I guess the mental space of Matt and Mark over at Top Cow. Uh, and then when I moved out to L.A., you know, I just would have coffee with, uh, with Matt every now and then. And a couple of years ago, I just said, hey, man, I'm, I'm really interested in, in getting back into comics. Um, it doesn't have to be an original thing of mine, but I would like to kind of write books because I'm writing screenplays and selling screenplays, but it takes so long to get a movie made and so many things have to click uh, around you in order for your movie to get made. You know, you're writing this work, right? No one's seeing it. No one's reading it. Even if you're making some money from it, no one's really reading it. You know, 25 people might read a screenplay or 45 people in the world might read a screenplay, even if you make, you know, a, a pretty decent amount of money for selling it. And I wanted more people to read my work. Uh, so Matt said, hey, I have this idea about this town, and it's full of criminals. And, and there's this mailman, and the mailman has Asperger's. And there's some familiar relationships and some stuff going on. What do you think about that? And so I said, well... Yeah, let me let me think about that. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, I had nothing at that at that meeting with Matt over coffee. Like I hope, you know, you can ask <laughs> Matt what he saw in my face, but it sounded like he just listed a bunch of things that had nothing to do with each other, and I was I was going to fail at making this cool. 
Um, so I go home and I meditated because uh, I, I meditate. I've been meditating regularly since I was, I don't know, like in college. And I just kind of got this this vibe, you know, kind of came to mind. Like the place started to take shape, the, the way it looked and, and, you know, some of the characters and how they would behave and their relationships. I started to kind of see something that could engage sort of, I guess, the two halves of my personality because, like, part of me is a kid who grew up in, in Missouri. And I grew up in St. Louis, but, I, you know, I have a lot of family that's in small town, Missouri, too. And then part of me is very metropolitan. You know, I went to NYU, live in L.A., whole thing. And in this postal universe that Matt had created, I saw an opportunity to engage both those parts of my, my character. So you had a place that was ostensibly, visually, a small town, but all of the characters within it had these really interesting, complex, you know, extreme backstories. Uh, and I thought, well, you know what, I'm kind of uniquely positioned to be able to do something with this. And that's sort of one of the things I think about when people ask me if I'd like to write something, you know. Uh, I think, like, well, do I have anything unique to offer this? You know, like, if I were to have a conversation with Dan DeBio or Jim Lee or Jeff Johns, or, you know, uh, Axel Alonso or something, and they'd say, well, Brian, do you want to do a Marvel thing? Brian, do you want to work with DC? What I would say is, well, what characters do you want to do? And then I would look at that and see if I could do something unique with them. You know, is there something that I can specifically offer from my experience and my perspective that could, you know, help kind of continue the legacy of the character? And so with Postal, I felt like, yeah, you know what? I think there's something I can do with this. So I sent Matt a couple pages of just kind of random thoughts. And he liked it. And uh, that got me started there. And um, then, you know, I was, I was co-writing Postal with him. Uh, and I love stories and storytelling. I like reading scripts. I'll talk to anybody about narrative, whatever. And so he would just keep having conversations with me about some other projects he was doing, some other things he was doing. He would show me a script that he had written. And, just, you know, we would just be kind of just talking about it, right? Because Matt is a really smart guy who's always engaging the world around him. I don't know if you follow him on Facebook or any of that stuff, but, like, he's always, like, thinking. It's like he's absorbing and thinking, absorbing and thinking, and, you know, and, and questioning, questioning, questioning. He really does have, like, a scientific mind. Um, and so we would have these extended conversations about storytelling and story structure and these things, and so finally he asked me, like, would you like to, you know, come on board and do some story editing, kind of, like, across the board on a few titles? And uh, I told him, well, you know, I never really fashioned myself in editor um but yeah you know like i think i could i could contribute something to it and uh, i've certainly studied the form of comics intensely over the past like you know 10 years and grew up reading them um and so that's why i landed in what i'm doing now uh so that was an extraordinarily long answer to your question i thought <laughs> it was a good answer um and so many things to go from from there uh we're gonna talk postal a little bit i kind of want to focus on the story editing uh position i mean a lot of, uh, of course. You know, most people fans know of, you know, the writers and the artists and the anchors and, and maybe they'll know the anchors. Um, at, but they don't really know the behind the scenes, which I always thought was really interesting is that there's this massive team that really does not mm-hmm. get credit or recognition in the creation of the comic. Um, so what does the actual story editor do in the overall process? Well, you know, I don't think there's um, sort of like a one-size-fits-all response to that, right? Every every company uh, delineates responsibility in different ways, and so the way it works at Top Cow, um, 
And you've got Betsy Gonya, who is incredibly bright, incredibly bright, very talented. And she oversees things like story and art. You know, she looks at the pencils that come in, gives suggestions to the pencils, all of that. There's Ryan Cady who's over there. He's also a very, very smart guy, very talented guy. Um, so they're talking uh, about story with creators as well. Um, and then Matt gives us a thing on everything. And so I guess what I bring to this is I – I'm sort of, you know, I, I'm, I'm a writer, right? I, I'm, I'm a writer in the sense that I sort of write all forms. I've written screenplays. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm working on a novel at the moment. I'm working on a stage play. You know, so I just kind of the writing of it. So what I focus on there is sort of overall story structure, uh, character arcs, those kind of dynamics. Um, thinking about, you know, how to. So when someone talks to me about a story they want to do. I, I just sort of look at it and think, is this the best way for them to get to where they want to go, right? Um, it's not so much about getting in there and changing something to what I think is good or I think is bad as much as I want to help people um, accelerate, I guess, the, the, the journey from, you know, beginning to wherever they want to take the readers experientially. Um, and so uh, I look at my role there is how do I make it, how do I make what you want to do more effective? You know, how can I offer my experience and my perspective as really a fellow writer more than an editor um, so that, you know, you can get more of what you wanted to get out of your story? And so that's how I approach it. And, and uh, you know, that's how we do it there. We're, we're, there's actually not that many of us over at Top Cow. So, you know, we, we manage the projects in a fairly intensive way, um, but we don't have that many projects to manage. But that's how the, the synergy's been working, and it's been great. And I give Matt a lot of credit for allowing, you know, Betsy, Ryan, and myself to, you know, communicate with each other and make some decisions and make some, you know, can, you know create some things. And, you know, and, and he's very receptive to ideas, which is, which is awesome. That's what you want, you know, someone you work for more mm-hmm. to be, right? Uh, so yeah, it's great. Um, and, uh, uh, I think it's been rewarding for kind of for everybody so far. And we've got some really cool things, uh, coming, coming along, you know, like Matt's got a book called Symmetry that he's been working on that he's, you know, uh, been promoting a little bit. And it's a, it's a very interesting take on how societies, um, develop in the future. And the, it asks the question, are the differences that we have with each other necessary or is the elimination of difference necessary to create harmony within human society? And so it's about a society that has been segregated racially, um, but in a way where they're unaware of each other. They're not aware of the segregation because they're not aware of variance. It's about a society where emotion has been damped down um, by pharmaceuticals. And it's sort of, I guess, you know, what happens when you try to eliminate the humanity inside of the humanity to save humanity, right? Uh, so it's a really interesting, you know, um, kind of, you know, challenging uh, science fiction piece he's doing um, with a very talented artist named Rafa Aiko. And so, you know, they're doing that. We still have some, you know, some other things. Like the Tithe, his book is interesting. I think Postal. Tithe is um, really fascinating. Yeah, the Tithe, you know, the Tithe is, is engaging like some, you know, like politics and comics, right? Well, the tithe is where politics and comics meet, it's quite literally. And mm-hmm. 
um, uh, that story of FBI agents that are pursuing, uh, you know, kind of esoteric criminals, criminals that are tied into religion in some way. Um, and it's about reason and religion and politics. And the next arc that Matt's doing, uh, I just read the, the latest uh, issue of it, is really fascinating because he's taking on uh, Islamophobia and some of the kind of of-the-moment things. And so, you know, that's happening. Uh, uh, the next arc of Postal really gets into the psychology of what's going on uh, in, in Eden in that town. We're introducing a new character who I think is going to shake things up a little bit in a good way. Uh, and Matt has allowed me to uh, bring some more of my extremity into it. Um, so I think that's going to be a pretty great experience. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think I think we're we're headed in, into a good place. You know, for the people that follow Top Cow and have been kind of seeing the shift into new stories and new worlds, I think they've got some cool uh, books to uh, to pick up over like the next uh, few months. Yeah, they definitely fill a, a niche that really doesn't. Uh, not many other folks are doing. Um, Think Tank is a perfect example, I and mean, the, the amount of research right. Matt puts into his series are are amazing. Uh, to read his notes in the back is usually a, a education, you know, beyond the comic. Uh, with, with Postal, it was supposed to be a, a, a limited series originally, right? Then they got extended to ongoing. Yeah, you know, um, it's Matt told me that he wanted to uh, do an arc of it and see what the reception would, would be. And then if the reception okay. was there, you wanted to keep it going, right? You know, it's, in comics, it's very difficult to just say, hey, we're going to do, you know, a billion issues of this. But uh, I'll give Matt a lot of credit. Matt supports the book. You know, and when Matt decides he wants to do a book, that book will continue to go as long as it makes sense to do the book, you know. And um, when he makes a decision, he kind of sticks to it. And that's that's what you want. You know, you want someone that's going to make a call and stick to the call because uh, it frees you up creatively and you're not writing worried about whether or not, you know, you're going to be able to finish your arc. And I know people that, have done, that are going through that right now that are working yeah. on, um, you know, series and they don't know if they're going to be able to finish the arc of the series. And that's got to be incredibly frustrating. Uh, but, you know, when Matt said, hey, I want to do this book, you know, it's kind of implied that we're going to do this book as long as this book is working, you know. Or until we finish did the story, whatever comes first. <laughs> did the announcement that it was going to be ongoing, which I don't know, it was maybe a couple months ago, a month or two ago? Um, did yeah. that, yeah, something like that. Uh, did that shift anything at all? Did that kind of like uh, open up what you were planning on doing? You know, give you a little bit more breathing room to maybe draw some stuff out, switch the kind of the story up that you were planning initially? That's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, yes and no. Uh, when I'm working on something, I tend to see the long tail of its future, just creatively. I'll put down, well, you know, this arc, and then maybe this, and then maybe that, and then maybe that. So I, I kind of I have it all sort of happening in my head like dominoes. Uh, when I found out that we were going to get an opportunity to go ahead and do all of that, that was great, because a lot of those notions become concrete, and you start investing into them with detail, you know, not just the feeling of something. This would be cool if this happened, turns into this is how we're going to make that happen, right? So that was the conversion uh, for me um, when I found out that we were going to do more of them. And that was great because it's an incredibly challenging book to do for me. It's the hardest thing I think I've ever written because it doesn't have any of the histrionics that most uh, mainstream comics have. 
Right? We don't have heroes and villains. We don't mm-hmm. have, you know, not in the classic archetypal way. The, the conflict is very much rooted in what people want um, and, and what stands in their way. Right? I, are you familiar with the David Mamet writing rules like the four Mamet things he talks about? I don't. I know his. I'm like I know his writing. I just don't. I don't know the rules. Like I know he has the set of rules. Okay. I don't know what the specific specific are. Well, if you don't mind, for for people who are yeah. listening to this that are writing stories or thinking about writing stories, so uh, there's a there's a a, a, lot of, a list of questions, a short questions, and it'll take me like you know a minute to go through it that are really important to ask of your stories, and this comes from David Mamet, and so it's it's you know who is the the main character? What does that main character want? What's standing in that main character's way? What happens if they don't get it? And why now? Right? So those questions um, are really the source of conflict and conflict is drama. Well, with Postal, it's really rooted in what does someone want? What does Mark want for himself? What's standing in his way? What happens if he doesn't get it? Why now? And that, that list of questions exists for everyone, but it's it requires that Matt and I kind of drag up a lot of stuff internally in order to invest that world with the characterization that I think it requires. So it's the most difficult thing that I do uh, month to month creatively. Um, I, I dread it a little bit, and then I and I you know I, I dig into it, and then it's like catharsis for me. And on the other side of it, I feel you know like I've been exercised in a way. Um, but uh, it's been good, you know, that people seem to get a lot out of that process. So I'm suffering for you guys. So I hope that you like it. <laughs> uh, the thing that's, I think, interesting and re- really unique about the series is that main character, Mark, who has Asperger's, which you brought up before, uh, not mm-hmm. just in how the character interacts with folks, how you're writing it, um, you know, the, the kind of the uh, thought bubbles that are, are there are very different than every other series. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't necessarily, I mean, I maybe probably dealt with people and I have no idea that they had to Asperger's. Um, like, how much research did you do into that uh, to, you know, make sure that you were portraying it, you know, properly and kind of doing it justice? Um, you know, how much well, of that weigh in your mind when you're writing? Yeah, well, for me, research, I try to personalize my research. And by by that, I mean, I try to research facts through people. So when Matt brought up the idea that Mark would have Asperger's, that he'd be on the spectrum, my first instinct was to talk to people that have been diagnosed uh, with Asperger's and just get experiential things from them. What's the most difficult part of your day? What is something that people don't know about you that you wish they knew? What is something that you wish you understood about people? And uh, the, great, the greatest part of being a writer, and I really think this is true, is when you're a writer, you have a license to talk to anybody about anything, anytime. And it's okay. And you can be a student your entire life. And I think the most uh, rewarding part about being a, a writer, a storyteller, is it gives you an excuse to be a lifelong student. It gives you an excuse to learn. So much of, of learning ends once we hit our profession. Right? We, you know, you go to high school, maybe you go to college, maybe you go to graduate school, and then learning kind of stops unless you have to study to get some certification so you can get a promotion. But learning for the sake of interest 
starts to get frowned on, um, you know, in the kind of the trade school mentality that even some of the, you know, the big universities have, the classic universities. Well, when you're a writer, you can just take sojourns in the interest and people are fine with it. And people will open up to you because you're a writer. It's, it's, it's almost like you are given license to listen. Mm-hmm. And it's great. So what I did, I just reached out to people and just had a bunch of conversation with folks uh, in person uh, via Skype. Uh, emailed some folks that I saw that had YouTube, like YouTube journals, and got a experiential picture of what it was like to have this thought process. And it was, what was most interesting to me was the inability to read people's emotions instinctively. Because I've always considered myself a person who's been pretty good at being able to talk to someone and uh, build a rapport. You know, just look, look at their body language, look at their expressions, listen to the pace of their speech, and kind of understand where they are emotionally while I'm talking to them. The idea of not being able to do that, the idea of sort of losing that fluency in, mm-hmm. in nonverbal communication and resting only in the literal was really interesting because it's so different than how I've lived my life. And with comics in particular, you have the ability to illustrate an inner monologue. And so, you know, you might not get this person's thoughts in the real world, but in the world of comics, I can give you Mark's thoughts. I can give you his internal process. So even if he's not that emotive in the scenes, you know what he's thinking and you know what he's feeling. And so that seemed something that was uh, unique to form. You know, there's a, there's a guy named Neil Cohn who wrote a book. Uh, I will plug his book now. And I forgot the name of the book. But it's a, so I'm sorry, Neil, I'm not plugging it effectively. But the book is a recent book. It's a great book. It's about the visual language of comics. It might be called the visual language of comics. And it's all about how we interpret sequential art, right? It's about how that's a different experience. And so... Every story has to be unique to form. And with Postal, Mark's characterization made him unique to the form of comics, to the juxtaposition of inner monologue and dialogue, to the, uh, the way you could use sequential art to stop time, to lengthen time, to really get into the perspective of it. And the comics that I grew up loving were comics that brought you inside inside the characters. You know, like I, when I read Batman the Dark Knight Returns by Frank Miller and Len Varley, mm-hmm. for the first time I felt like I was Batman. I understood it. Right? I wasn't just reading Batman, I was experiencing Batman. And for me, uh, experiential design, the experiential quality of a book is incredibly important to me. Um, and so I saw Postal as an opportunity to do that through Mark. And some people that uh, do uh, fall in the Asperger spectrum have been very generous in their support of the book. You know, I've had people come up to me at conventions and say, you didn't exploit this, you know, you didn't turn it into a gimmick, you know, you didn't, he wasn't uh, the cute, obsessive, compulsive detective on the, on the television show. He's a more interesting character. And, and that's rewarding because uh, I, I think it's, it's always great when we can look at fiction and we can see a reflection of ourselves in it. And if I can do that for someone, even in a small way, and, and the issues of the comic book, then, you know, I'm, I'm sort of 
happy and honored to be able to do that. So uh, Neil Cohn's book is the visual language of comics, so you nailed it. Hey, Neil, I made it. It's the visual language of the comics. I still love you, Neil. Go buy it. It's great. Um, I mean that that's the thing that really kind of strikes me with about the the series as a whole is that you you really uh, treat Mark and uh, his Aspergers with respect. Like you can tell that you've gone out of your way as a writer to do your best to portray it accurately and not uh, use it as like a gimmick. Um, and it, you know it, it right. really as a reader it does come off of that, which is is great because. I can think of a, a couple other shows or, you know, uh, uh, yeah, television shows, I think mostly where it's treated as a punchline or, um, you know, a magic trick to be used at some important moment. Well, that killer um, really got away, but that, that Asperger's caught him, right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, if it hadn't been for you meddling Asperger's kids, I would have gotten away with it, right? Like, that was... That was something that Matt and I had early discussions on. One of the things about Matt that I, I really uh, um, admire uh, is his desire to not stereotype people that are in his books. You know, he actively works against that. And he's very modest about this. You know, there's a lot of talk in comics about diversity and this and, no, you know, no this and that. Um, and, you know, Matt is not a person that's going to get out there and crow about all the choices he's making. But he routinely hires people of color uh, and women in major positions to do major projects. And when he puts diverse characters in his work, he works very hard to make them more than the asterisk, you know, of whatever their classification is, to make them more than the census box check. Uh, And so that was one of the things that we certainly wanted to do with all the characters in Postal, really. You know, if you look at the mayor, you look at Maggie, you look at Mark, and if you don't know who these characters are, you should go out and you should buy our book, and it's awesome. Uh, I think the first trade is like nine ninety nine, so you should go ahead and get that, listeners. But uh, we look at these characters. You know, none of them are simply what they may appear to be on the surface, because no one is, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the one of the precepts of Postal, one of the things that uh, we sort of build all the storytelling on, uh, is the battle between what someone appears and what someone is. And all of these characters are never as uh, simple in definition as they would seem when you start engaging with them. So, uh, you know, Mark just became symbolic of that, wanting to make him real and not trying to make him cute, uh, which I think would be the seductive thing, you know, is to turn him into like Adrian Monk. Not that I have any problem with Monk. I mean, Tony Shalhoub's great, great show, but like, we didn't want to just execute Monk inside of a small town. That's not interesting to either Matt or myself. Yeah, so with the with the characters, um, you kind of touched on, and something that I've, I'm really enjoying with the series is that it is, as much as you think you might know someone, each issue seems to pull back like a, just a layer a little bit more um, slowly. Mm-hmm. You've, you've kept the, the actual amount of characters really tight, um, what was interesting, though, is you, you kind of deviated, I think, a little bit in this, the issue six, is that you had Emily in pretty much a self-contained issue. Um, right. And I can't think of a point where we've seen Emily previously in the, the other five. Um, sure. How much of like, the, the sound of the town do you have sketched out? Like, do you know everyone in the town, what they do and where they live? Um, you know, how much of that world have you actually, like, laid down and built? Well, I have a uh, journal 
of all of the characters that I think could be in the town, you know, where they would live and what they would do. And it's, it's something I sort of flip through when we're thinking about stories and all of that. So with the, with the recent, the, the Emily issue, Matt wanted to focus on the mayor. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a great idea because I, I, you know, I, I kind of like her. Uh, I like her acerbic quality. But I also didn't want her to simply be the, the person that kills somebody and says something edgy before she does it because that, you get diminishing returns after a while. You know, you can only do that trick for so long until it's revealed as simply a trick. You have to invest that with characterization. So I said, well, you know, I've got this character that I think is in this town. And I wanted to do a, I, I wanted a character that was an outcast among outcasts. And that's what Emily was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted someone who was once beautiful and now not, um, who was this kind of outcast in this, in this world of outcasts, who represented a finality and a mortality. And there's something really interesting about people who routinely put themselves in situations where their lives are at risk. They tend to want to avoid mortality at all costs. They don't want to deal with mortality. They, they might have gallows humor, but they really don't want to think about actual consequence. And she's like walking consequence, right? She's the walking consequence of criminality in a lot of ways. So we talked about her a little bit. And I said, well, you know what? We could bring her into this thing. We could put her on this precipice. And we could have the mayor do the opposite of what we've seen the mayor do. We could set up a situation where you think she would go in there and she would say some hard-ass thing and then do some hard-ass thing and then that would be done with the clap her hands and walk on. But let's see how she reaches somebody and let's see how the mayor reaches this person based on trauma. And we can show what the mayor's been through, what Laura's been through, and how she got from there to where we know her, and then how she can access those feelings to connect with those feelings inside of someone else. So that's, you know, what, what, what all came out of. So, you know, I've got this list of characters that we're always searching for ways to bring in. You know, there's a, there's a couple of interesting characters in uh, the next couple issues uh, that lead up until the next arc, right? So uh, seven and eight. Uh, lead into one another, and those issues lead into the new arc, which starts at nine. And we're bringing in a couple new characters into into those issues, but they'll they'll feel like they've been there a while because they have been a while. We just haven't turned the camera, so to speak, on them and shown them to the audience. Didn't, didn't oh, sorry. Um, so the, my reading of the, the sixth issue is that the mayor uh, went, didn't go in there hardcore because uh, she almost sees Emily as a reflection of uh, all the evil shit that everyone in that town has done. Um, that Absolutely. she is like an, an outward reflection. And, and it's almost like I, I could get you to kill yourself. I could get you to pull the grenade and all that. But, you know, you are kind of a reminder that none of us are good, pure, or, you know, really deserve of redemption in a weird way. Uh, well, that's a, that's a really interesting thing that you bring up. I, I talked to Matt about the concept of a sin eater. Are you familiar with a sin, what a sin eater is? It's like this sort of mythological character that houses all of the sins of a place. And it's this wretched thing, but this thing is a sponge of, of sin, of vice, 
of all of the negative aspects of character. Uh, and so because this thing adopts all of that and suffers all of that stuff, the town in which a sin eater exists is exonerated from having these parts. And so Emily, in a lot of ways, is a sin eater for Eden. You know, she is where all of the monstrosity gets focused uh, so that everyone else can be delivered from it, you know, by their freak. And that's kind of the, that's the purpose of a freak, right? The purpose of a freak is to unify the fear, right? And then now we're getting into politics. It's the purpose of whatever boogeyman that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, people need to be afraid of, right? So we create a boogeyman, and that boogeyman is where all of our fear goes, but sometimes it can elevate our nature in every other way. You know, we, we come together because we're all afraid of the other thing. Uh, and, and in some ways, Emily did serve that purpose for the town because she was that thing that no matter what you've done, she was uglier than you, literally, right? Uh, and, and that was a, a note of insurance. And so, yeah, so, you know, Matt and I will go back and forth with all these ideas, and I get really pretentious about everything, and then he makes me, you know, calm down. Uh, and then I, and then I, you know, join the real world and try to tell a story that other people besides me would like. <laughs> that's, that's kind of our process. Sometimes we'll be like, Brian, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Man. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, you're right. I'm sorry, my bad. Just blow stuff up and kill people. That's all you do. That's that's what. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about, man. No one knows what the hell you're talking about. I think yeah, I think I think the thing that he says to me a lot is, no one knows what the hell you're talking about. I'm like, okay. <laughs> You're probably right. You're probably right. And he is right a lot of times. But, you know, like, what, what did that do? Uh, so you've, you've got Romulus uh, coming up. Um, it was announced at San Diego Comic-Con. What, what can you tell us of the series, for those who might not know? Well, well, Romulus is kind of a completely different experience than Pulse in a lot of ways. Romulus is, you know, one part uh, action-adventure thriller uh, comic, and then one part sort of conspiratorial, historical, esoteric exploration book. And it's a pretty simple premise. It's about uh, a secret society named the Order of Romulus that's existed ever since the beginning of ancient Rome. And in the shadows, they have affected the, the world that we live in today, and they sort of control everything from behind the scenes. Uh, and one of their assassins, a character named Ashlar, who was raised by them and trained by them has turned against them and she's trying to tear them apart. And Romulus is all about her, you know, her desire to fight this kind of one, one woman war against a society that has entrenched itself uh, in, you know, kind of every aspect of our lives in certain ways. Uh, and it allows Nelson and myself and Nelson and I, you know, this is something that is born directly from conversations that Nelson and I have had about heroism, about history, about philosophy, about psychology. And wanting to boil all that down into an adrenalized experience. Like, you know, we want to know, can you take something that is almost sort of breezy and kinetic like a manga and invest it with some challenging ideas that engage uh, some of the more esoteric aspects of civilization and, and, you know, what is inside of ourselves and manifesting in the world around us. And so that's what it is. And so, um, you know, we're, uh, we're working on it now and, and we're, you know, we're getting the issues done. And it's looking really cool because Nelson's great. You know, he's a brilliant, brilliant artist. 
and we think we've created a character in Ashlar that people will respond to. And I always grew up responding to underdogs. You know, I like people that had more hustle than luck. I like people who fought and suffered and sacrificed but still got up to continue the fight. That kind of stuff helped me when I was growing up, those kind of characters. And I always said that if I got an opportunity to create my own thing, I wanted to create a character that could do that as well, that would have those, those principles. And uh, uh, especially thinking about, you know, female heroes and, and all of that, you know, I wanted to uh, be part of a story with uh, a female hero that kind of, you know, had more colors in, in the rainbow than just like a token idea of having like a woman who has powers. Like, you know, it's, it's like they always say, right, it's not just about having a strong female character, it's about having a good female character. And so, you know, Elsa and I are working very hard on that as well. And that will be, it'll be out next year. Uh, I don't know exactly when, um, but if people follow me on Twitter and Facebook and all that, follow Nelson Blake on, on Twitter and Facebook, you'll, you know, you'll get regular updates and, um, you know, see artwork. We, we post, like, panels here and there and some sketches and design work. So uh, it's cool. And, and even without it having, you know, a release date, people are starting to kind of get around it. There's momentum being built. So we're really excited to share that with people. Trying to um, you know, as comic creators, or even you know, speaking of you know, Top Cow as a company, like how do you go about to keep that momentum and keep that interest over that time period? Um, you know, for, for those who might not know, you know, comics is like different in industry in that you, you don't just know a product that's coming out. You also generally get some teases to like what the product is. You usually know about three months beforehand. You can plan stuff out. Mm-hmm. Uh, that way it's, it's very different than other, you know, retail businesses. Uh, but as, as a creator, you know, how does that affect you? Or, um, how do you kind of go about thinking about the launch um, that, you know, announced at San Diego, which is about a month and a half ago. And, you know, we're not going to see it for another, you know, Many months. Um, well, you know, I yeah. think uh, this, this is when having some Hollywood experience is helpful because you see the long process of marketing a film to people, right? There's like the announcement of its existence. And then, well, at first you announce that you're going to make it. Then you announce the people that are going to be part of the making of it. Then you show some of the early creative decisions, then production and so forth. Yeah, so we sort of approach it the same way. And, you know, every uh, comic book is its own thing uh, that might have its own fan base, right, that might have its own audience. So you have to approach everything organically and individually and specifically. So, you know, the way that we would, you know, kind of share Postal with people is different than the way we'll share Romulus with people or different than the way we'll share Think Tank with people. But I find that if you are genuinely enthusiastic, and this is, again, going out to all those people out there that are, you know, creating their own things and looking to find homes for their things and all that, if you're genuinely enthusiastic about your work and you maintain that enthusiasm, it's infectious and people will grow. You know, the, 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 the audience will grow. More people will get on board what you're doing. And so just share, you know, just keep sharing things. And if you keep sharing things and, and keep engaging people that are engaging you, you can maintain and grow that interest over a long time. 
as long as people feel like it's leading towards a thing. You know, as long as people feel like, yeah, this is going to result in a cool book that I can, you know, add to my pull list or pre-order from my local retailer and uh, and get into it. So it's challenging in some ways, but it's also very natural to the process. Tales into something we were kind of talking about before the, the show went on the air uh, with the idea of comic creators as personalities themselves. And, and the industry to me, yeah. I mean, I've been reading comics for 30 years at this point, 30-something years. Uh, it's kind of gone waves where you've gone from where the characters and the stories were, or maybe even the publisher was the focus to the creators, maybe back to the characters and the stories, back to the creators. And with the kind of the uh, explosion of technology and social networking, it seems to have gone back to the creators. Yeah, well, it's it, it's 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 strange, right? Like uh, Tarantino actually talks about this. I was reading a, a recent interview with Tarantino, and he was lamenting how it's incredibly difficult to just be known for your work now, because mm-hmm. you're also expected to be like a personality. And even though he is kind of like this larger-than-life gregarious director personality he didn't want his personality to become larger than his work. Uh, And I do think that people like having more access, I think, into the the world of the people who make the stuff that they enjoy. And that's really cool. I do think there is a, a tendency to overweight the personality over the, the products. And that's what I try to stay away from, you know, like it's, Ultimately, my task is to tell the best stories I can uh, to as many people as possible and and make that money that you're spending on either my trade paperback or my single issues, that money well spent. And if you like me, that's really cool. And who doesn't like to be liked, right? But I think I see a lot of people that are trying to get their careers together and you know, do, doing their first thing. They're kind of overweighting their personality presence and underweighting the productivity quotient. And uh, you do have to balance sort of both wings of the airplane. Um, But you have a distribution platform that allows you to bring people into your world like never before. And that's great. So like anything that's powerful, and the Internet is a powerful thing, right, Uh, the way that you can digitize and distribute your personality is a powerful thing. You know, what does Uncle Ben tell Peter, right, with great power, with greater responsibility? And so, you know, I think people have to be responsible about how they're using that power um, and not just, you know, getting seduced by it and getting seduced away from creating. Because everything that you do, Brett, everything you do is taking a little bit of energy, right? So, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I I talk to people about if I were to add up people's Facebook posts, like take take a random friend and add up their Facebook posts, that might be half a novel of content over the course of a year. But it's not half a novel. So, you know, you have to make that decision. Like, how much of this energy am I going to expend coming up with the wittiest 140-character thing I can say versus how much of that energy is going to go into this book that I'm going to be asking you to pay for? Um, but... I, and I do try to engage people as much as I can online. You know, uh, my Twitter feed is an open thing. And you want, if you add me, I'll add you. Um, same thing with Facebook. Uh, and when I'm, you know, making convention appearances, I try to be as, you know, open as friendly as I can there too and talk to people. I mean, I, anyone who takes the time 
to read my work, I'm enormously grateful to because there are so many things vying for people's time right now, so many things. And a lot of those things are good. A lot of those things are good. So when someone's reading your work, they're not reading something else. They're not watching something else. When someone's buying your book, they're not buying something else. And we creators have to be continually grateful the generosity of interest from the people that, uh, that, you know, consume the stuff that we make. So I try to be as open as I can, but sometimes I have to take a break from all of it and just write. <laughs> you know, I have to get something done. Uh, as much as Donald Trump tries to drag me to Twitter to berate him every day, <laughs> I have to get something done, you know. It's like you have an agenda to keep me from being productive. Yeah, I just saw something pop up, uh, speaking of idiot things that Republican candidates say that uh, caught my eye, and I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. So <laughs> It's kind of crazy. It's The normalization of madness is a little disturbing. You know, it's it's the, the, the normalization of political extremity uh, is is a little daunting. You know, it's, it's a little disturbing. Like, it's one thing when there's like that one, you know, one candidate going to say something crazy because they're crazy. But then when that person starts leading the polls for a significant amount of time, you wonder exactly what's happening. Um, yeah, and it, it, idiocracy come to life. My judge is a genius and a uh, psychic, I think. Yeah, I mean, who wants Donald Trump to talk to Putin about anything? <laughs> <laughs> so, anything. not said by him, but here is the, the thing that caught my eye is, government can build a massive seawall to keep out waves from the ocean, but we can't build a wall to keep out waves of illegals. Speaking of boogeymen, right? <laughs> like, speaking, speaking of trying to unify people around fear, the, the funny thing is, they don't – the right wing refuses to learn the basic lesson of political science these days, right? Like, they, they do the same thing every time, uh, and they expect to yield a different result, a definition of insanity. They, they go so mm-hmm. far right in the primary, in the run-up to the primaries, that by the time they have to make a centrist shift after the, the nominee is found, all of it rings false because we've had nine months of you saying crazy things, just crazy things, you know? And the, and the really interesting part of it is the, it, they're, they're, they're carrying all these self-inflicted wounds into uh, the, the general election, and they just don't seem to understand why any of it's happening when the mathematics are less and less on their side, right? Now, I'm a, I'm a left-wing guy, right? I'm kind of a liberal guy, you know? Um, I could be described as a fuzzy-headed liberal, I suppose. But, you know, when you're, when you're looking at this, you do, you do want a strong two-party system. I do think dialectic is important. Like, there's a lot of conservatives that are on my Facebook page, for instance. And if you're a conservative and you're listening to me, add me to Facebook, we'll talk. And we go back and forth about issues all the time, all the time. And sometimes they'll enlighten me about something. Hopefully sometimes I like them about something, perspective, you know, all that stuff. It's an actual dialogue. What's happening now isn't a dialogue between two parties. It's a lot of uh, emotion and something that kind of feels like insanity on on one side and then pragmatists on the other. And that's not, I think, the best way for us as a nation to find the best solutions to the problems that we have, you know. And 
I, I hope that we can figure out a way to disagree without hating each other, you know. Uh, and it seems like we're, we're losing the ability to do that. You know, everything is an ad hominem attack these days, and that, that bothers me um, a little bit because we can't remain, you know, a functioning nation if we're just spreading venom about one another while we're sharing the same soil and sharing the same government, no matter how we feel about that government. Yeah, I mean, it's. I've been doing this for, let's see here, uh, about 15 years, 14 years, 14 years, pretty much 14 years straight. Uh, it's been a slow, it's just been a downhill slide ever since. It's been fascinating so, to watch. So, I mean, so, so you, from, what, from your perspective, you have felt that it's getting worse, right? It's, you know, everyone says everything is getting worse. Right, like that's that's the that's the generational clarion call is it used to be better and now it's worse, right? But I I genuinely feel like it's getting. <laughs> what do you think? Do you think that the, that the discourse is getting worse, or are we just you know nostalgic about times before it's always been this ugly? No, no, no. It's it's definitely gotten worse. I mean, the the perfect prime, prime example I always go back to is the Tip O'Neill days where you could disagree, right. but then you grab a drink afterwards. You know, as much Absolutely. as you disagree, you could always go out afterwards and, you know, business is business, but nothing's personal. Uh, if I admit I have Republican friends, I'm, like, sneered at by certain people. Uh, and right. I have quite a few Republican fans, I, friends. Actually, I was – because I was friends in the first job I ever had with the, the other side, and that's all we were, we were friends. We'd go drinking, and that's about it. Um, I was accused of being, like, a traitor and, and giving away secrets. To them, and I was like, no, oh I, no, like that's not no. There's like no way in hell that that's true. Um, and it's gotten worse from there. Like the, this idea of uh, of uh, being able to reach out and have a, a normal conversation, and actually discuss things, is just it's so far gone. Um, and I think the internet's kind of sped it up because everything is outrage, and you need to you need to get there quick without much thought and. Uh, you know, being first and planting your flag is huge for a lot of folks. So it's uh, yeah, unfortunate. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it's it, been a slot. Yeah, it, yeah. it, does, it does seem like so much of it is about uh, searching for, for sources of outrage rather than trying to solve real problems. You know, it's, it's sort of building an armor of offense. And, you know, as a, as a, as a black male, right, there's multiple opportunities I had to be offended. <laughs> you know, like I get I get plenty of times to be offended. But like, you know, we have to kind of rise above the instinct to just live inside of a world of offense. Um and we also, in order to change anything, you have to convert some people from judging to listening. And you cannot mm-hmm. do that by just judging them back. Right? Like and so many times it's the people that are willing to listen that get the brunt of the frustration because they're the ones standing closest. And the people that will never listen don't even hear the frustration because they're already so far away, it never gets to them. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of that going on. And I, uh, I do try to talk to people about directing the frustration towards a more positive end. And coalition building ultimately is how you affect change. You have to do it mm-hmm. by building coalitions. And everyone isn't going to agree about everything, but if you can all decide to agree about one thing, then you can you can make difference happen. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you you pretty much nail it. Um it's it's been very interesting time. Like I I I've to say I've learned a lot and have become very jaded and uh a little frustrated would be an understatement, but I'm definitely not the idealist I was at, you know, twenty two starting off uh that I am today. It's been a very wild and weird ride, is I think the best way of putting it. Um you know, I think I think sometimes I think I'm getting more and more idealistic as I get older, you know? Like <laughs> I'm like turning into Jor-El. <laughs> like, they will be great. You can, you can show them their greatness. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, I think, I, think I, I lost my sentences maybe like a few years ago and come out to the other side of it. And now I'm sort of like, you know, in this other place where uh, I, I, I'm ready to believe in heroes and heroism and uh, our better angels and what we can become and what we can be. And, you know, taking it back to comics, that's what I love about comics is it can, these stories, these mythological stories, these stories of these demigods, you know, all this, they can show us the capacity that we have to overcome the things that we go through. And I think, they're, you know, the role of heroes in the lives of, of people is really important. Um, maybe even more important now than, than before because less and less people engage philosophy in its raw form. And a lot of the philosophy that we get now is through storytelling. A lot of the ideas that are shared for ideas' sake happen through stories. Like, look at True Detective, right? Like, how many people were watching that show engaging ideas because of what Rustin Cole was saying in the show? You know, and never really confronted those concepts before, but started confronting concepts of nihilism and, and you know, social responsibility and the existence of ascension evil and our ability to defeat it. And people were walking away from that show talking about these things. So I think that the vehicular quality of storytelling is incredibly important. Uh, and in a way, everything is political, you know, um, and everything is philosophical, whether you're an active participant in its philosophy or its politics, or it's just sort of passively, um, you know, getting vehicled through, you know, your work and your subconscious. Um, these things do have an ability to change lives and change perspective. You know, I still think about what would Batman do <laughs> in situations, you know. I still think about you know, what Luke Skywalker would do, what Obi-Wan would say about things, and, you know, and uh, um, to be able to be part of that legacy of doing that for other people is an honor. Yeah, so the, uh, and actually it's, it's an interesting question and something I've, I've asked every so often to, to folks is to me, uh, comics has always been political, even from the, the early comic strips, mm. which were mm. examinations of, of the um, you know, society at the time, haves and have not, um, you know, the poor and the rich, you know, back to the early 1900s. Um, and then, you you know, you've got it, you know, through the, the 30s and 40s, there's just that mythology building. Um, you had Captain America, you know, advocating to enter World War II a year before Pearl Harbor even happened. You know, comics, mm-hmm. I think, has a rich history of, of politics and, and using that to examine society and to discuss things. Um you know, it's it's something that it seems to kind of go in waves nowadays a little bit more so um, uh, than it has in the past. Like, it's almost some people are a little afraid to kind of touch upon it and, and not, and then others who, you know, obviously backlash on it, um, saying, saying entertainment shouldn't be political, seem to kind of just miss the history, um, that it's almost always been that way. Yeah, I think, you know, I think it, comics, let's say, you know, we're talking about, like, in the era of Ditko, for instance, 
I think there was a direct political quality to a lot of that work. A lot of the the early Stanley stuff, you know, a lot of that era stuff were characters that now are based in things that are socially acceptable points of view, but back then weren't in a lot of sectors. You know, the idea of like gender equality, you know, that you'd see in some Stanley stories, that wasn't something that was, you know, expected of society, really. You know, um, the way that uh, Thomas would handle things like prejudice and, and you know, racism, um, segregation, not directly, but indirectly through symbolism, through mutants, you know, um, through these sort of things. So, uh, or the, the Holocaust, you know, World War II and things. So I think comics were overtly political because these folks were people that had seen the capacity of evil. I mean, a lot of these books were either formed just after World War II uh, started, right before it started, you know, some of the 30s we're talking about, the, yeah, some of the advent of all this stuff. And so evil was happening, and uh, evil was on the mind. And I think as time has gone on and we, uh, the enemies of peace are varied and mysterious and much more shadowed than they ever have been before, and they're not ever present on our minds. You know, if you look at, like, the confrontational work of the 80s, well, what was happening in the 80s with the Reagan era? And mm-hmm. Reagan was all about evil empires and, and you know, dualistic world, right, dualistic worldviews, right? And so we were, you know, like, when I talked to uh, high school kids today about how I would do stop, drop, and roll uh, nuclear shelter drills when I was growing up, they look at me like I'm an alien. You know, they couldn't even believe that I would do that. And I did, I remember doing that. You know, we thought about nuclear weapons. We thought about getting to a bomb shelter and tucking your, you know, your face between your knees and covering the back of your head as if that was going to help. Um, and we were in that, and so the, the work reflected that sense of confrontation. You know, if you look at the work of the 80s, in the 80s, there was a certainty about goodness and a certainty about evil. And these things were in direct conflict. And in the 90s, I think we had grown comfortable for a while. The economy was getting better. Uh, you know, we were, we were we were sort of coming out of the morass of all that, and everything was internalized. And you see it in the work of the '90s, right? But you see, like the introspection that happened in the '90s, that was happening in music, that was happening in, in fiction. It was happening in comic fiction too. I mean, that's like the advent of the Neil Gaiman stuff, right? Which is all internal. You know, the Death and Sandman. And our our enemies, a lot of them were our internal enemies. You know, look at the 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 rise of anti-emasculation fiction in the '90s. Whether it's the the research of Patricia Highsmith and the talented Mr. Ripley, or the era of Chuck Palahniuk getting started in that time, you know, there was very much uh, almost like self-centered in a way where we were like the I guess the '80s obsession with ego and righteousness had converted into uh, a necessity to think about ourselves a lot. And we were in that place for a while, and then 9-11 happened. And unlike, you know, the, the 80s or the, the 40s or the 30s, our enemy wasn't centralized. You know, there wasn't a, a specific person. I mean, yeah, we had a bin Laden, but it wasn't the same. It wasn't the nation. We were, we were suddenly hunted down by concept. We were hunted down by vapor, you know, and 
I think it's it took a while for us to to figure out what to do with that, what to do with those feelings. What kind of heroes do you put up against vapor? How does Superman fight that? How does Batman fight that? How does Captain America fight that? Um, and I think we're still trying to figure that out, really. Um, and I wonder, you know, post the economic collapse, and I think about young people that went through that and saw their futures taken from them, the future they thought they would have. You know, they couldn't go to college because there wasn't the money to go to college. They couldn't finish college. Or, you know, um, they wound up staying at home for more years than they thought they were going to. And then you combine that with the Occupy movement. You combine that with, you know, the awareness of class across the board, class and race, class, race, and authority, and how that affects people uh, over, you know, in all the demographics. You know, a lot of a lot of it's internal, and but not internal in terms of the self, but internal in terms of the nation. You know, a lot of the talk you see now are about enemies, but the enemies live here, and they don't live here in secret like the sleeper agent of the twenty four era, twenty four of Jack Bauer show. They they live here in the open in positions of authority, whether that authority is the authority of activism or the authority of law enforcement. If you notice, everyone uses the same verbiage, right? There's mm-hmm. either it is the the authority of the activist movement, they're they're terrorizing, they're a hate group, or it's the centralized systemic authority that's terrorizing as a hate group. So this stuff will affect the fiction too. And I think a lot of politics is implied in choices. You know, I think certainly making uh, a black man Captain America is is a political decision, whether esoteric or exoteric. Uh, Captain Marvel being a woman is a political decision in, in many ways. Um, so the companies are doing it, and they're doing, and they're doing it in, in smart ways. Um, you know, I, I, Ron Lewis is more directly confrontational about these ideas. You know, we are, we are sort of directly taking on some of the, the more troubled aspects of, of Western civilization and history. But, you know, I think that there's an appetite, again, for politics in the work, but nuanced politics. I don't think just carte blanche, you know, this is a right-wing thing or this is a left-wing thing is going to really work. I think it has to be a real engagement of the ideas and the issues and the consequences of choices. But I do think there is room in popular culture for a political discussion um, and in a way that there hasn't been in a while. And so, you know, if you engage that, that those ideas genuinely with a you know, thorough execution, I think you're going to get a reward um, out of it from the people that read them. That's, I think, a hell of a way to end the show. Uh, <laughs> that Sorry about that. Did I prattle on? No. I like prattling. That was awesome answer. I just, I, yeah, I know. I think that was an absolutely awesome answer. Um, I, I had it going for an hour and a half. Um, you know, I think I've taken up more than enough of your time. Um, <clears throat> as you I, said, well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you as long as you need me. No, no, no. Well, as, as you said, uh, the the time you spend doing this type of stuff is stuff you're not writing. Uh, time you're not spending Indeed. writing, uh, and I Indeed. do appreciate that. Um, so before we wrap up, I think uh, I always like to give the guests the opportunity to plug everything that they're doing. Uh, if you want to plug your social networks, website, all that stuff, uh, books for folks to check out. Like, floor is yours to well, do that. Yeah, well, sure. Well, you know, well, thanks, everyone, for, for listening. And, you know, the most important thing is to continue to tune in to Brett's show because it's great and to continue to visit Graphic Policy because it's a great site. 
Um, so oh do that first. After you get done doing that, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Brian Everhill, Brian with a Y. Um, you know, like you type me in the Google and all my social media comes up. I don't hide behind cute things. Like, I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm just me. Uh, and upcoming books, well, you know, Postal um, is still going. So if you haven't checked out Postal and if anything that I was saying was interesting to you, you know, feel free to check out that trade. Um, I believe the trade is nine ninety nine for the first four issues, which is a pretty good deal. So, you know, you can get in on that. Um, the Tithe is a book that Matt Hawkins is writing that is a really interesting book that is, uh, you know, it's about law enforcement, politics, religion, all those things. Check that out. Think Tank is another book of Matt that's really great. And for, uh, you know, upcoming stuff, just pay attention to what Top Cow is doing on social media. You can add Top Cow uh, to Twitter and all that. And, you know, sort of linked to everyone else. Um, and if you want to ask me a question based on any of the crazy things I've said tonight, feel free to do it, you know, via the Internet. Uh, I am not a difficult man to get to, but I will probably take a long time to get back to you, but I promise I will. Um, <laughs> and besides that, you know, that's kind of all I have to plug. Oh, and Neil Cohn's book, what's it called? The, the uh, Language of visual. visual Storytelling by Neil Cohn. That's uh, C-O-H-N. Um, yep. It's great. It's a little academic, but it's very rewarding. Definitely give that one a try. Yeah. Uh, so thank thank you for uh, joining me and uh, doing the show. And it's definitely an open invite. You're more than welcome to come back whenever you want. Um, you're the type of guest we always have fun with to, to all kinds of discussions. I wish Alana was here because I'm sure she would have uh, been having a, a hell of a time uh, discussing things with you. So definitely have to have you back Perfect. when she's on. Well, thank you, brother. It's been great. So uh, appreciate it, and thanks, guys, for listening, and have a good night. Yeah, appreciate it. And uh, So everyone, you should uh, definitely go out to check Postal. Uh, Postal's fantastic series, Top Cow. Um, basically, a whole bunch of uh, criminals are in witness uh, protection in this town, and a um, nice little mystery kind of uh, unfolds, at least over the first arc, and the uh, next arc will be starting relatively soon. And then we've got Romulus coming up. Uh, next year. Uh, overall, Top Cow is doing some wonderful comics that definitely don't get the attention that they should and deserve. Um, but thank you again, uh, Brian, for joining us. Brian Edward Hill. Uh, you can, for those who enjoyed this, can catch us every single day at graphicpolicy.com. Of course, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, uh, we're uh, on YouTube, all at Graphic Policy. We keep it nice and consistent. Uh, I'm not sure if we'll be back next week. Uh, it is a holiday, so we tend to take those off to, you know, we even need breaks. Uh, for those who are unaware, we've also launched a second podcast that is Fear of the Walking Fanboys that airs after each episode of Fear of the Walking Dead. Uh, we're going to be discussing the series directly after. You can call in with your comments, um, questions, and we can uh, we can discuss each episode. But thank you for listening. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, for those who want to uh, listen, the show will be up on uh, in iTunes a little bit after it, it ends. Of course, we'll be here on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we'll also be posting it to uh, Stitcher and um, SoundCloud. Uh, SoundCloud will probably be tomorrow. Stitcher, I think it's automatically posted within like a few hours. So you can find us at all those places. Uh, listen on the go and on demand. Thanks for listening. I'm Brett. Until next week, keep it geeky.